Saturday mornings sometimes look like this at our house. My kids stumble out of bed, half asleep, half alive like zombies. One by one, they slowly emerge from their graves, which are also called beds in our house. They do their zombie walk down the hallway until they plop down on the couch and usually start watching some cartoons with very blank, lifeless, expressionless faces, couch and cartoons, and nowadays maybe some iPads sprinkled in there, but that's pretty much the Saturday morning uh, routine for all kids since TV was invented, and like all humans, kids need time to wake up. They, like us adults, need time to ease into the morning. So they sit there like zombies, staring at the TV, just trying to wake up, trying to come to, trying to re-enter the world. And then one of them, and it varies each time, but one of them says it. One of them is somehow able to start communicating, and one of them asks a question, asks the question, Dad, can we get donuts? That question changes everything on Saturday morning in our house. That question defies several laws of the natural world that we live in. That question starts a chain reaction. Slow-moving, undisturbed zombies start to move. There's activity. Formerly lifeless beings begin to move. And when or if I give the answer yes... Something happens that I can only explain with biblical language. When I say yes to donuts, it's like resurrection takes place. People come out of the graves. It's like Ezekiel's valley of dry bones coming to life. It's like those people who came out of the graves and started walking around Jerusalem after Jesus was resurrected. And really the closest that I'll ever get to raising people from the dead is when those who are still asleep, if I say, we have donuts, it's like I have power. They come up out of the grave. Sometimes it's like the rapture. Dead bodies that are sprawled all over the living room floor and the couch, wherever they are, seemingly dead bodies come to life. Some even get a jump start on the rapture because they actually leave the ground temporarily. All because dad said yes to donuts. But what happens when I leave to get the donuts? There is still activity. I tell them to clean up a little, to put some toys away. Basically, I I tell them to get ready for my return. So there's activity. And some of these so-called zombies brush their teeth and some wash their hands and some get dressed and some put plates and napkins on the table and some get a glass of milk or a glass of water. And some of them imagine and dream about the taste and texture of that maple bar. Some of them dream about the multicolored sprinkles that will cover that donut. So there's excitement, there's anticipation. Why? Because they're preparing for my return. They're preparing for dad to walk through the door. They love dad so much they can't wait to see him. They just can't wait for dad to return. They just can't wait for, to see dad again. They love dad so much they have missed dad the whole time he has been gone. And when dad walks through the front door, they all say in unison as if they rehearsed it, Donuts! I like to think that they love me more than donuts. Maybe they really do love me more than donuts. But in that moment, 
They are rejoicing because dad kept his word. Dad kept his promise. Dad promised donuts and dad came through. Sure, they love donuts. They really do. But deep down inside, I know that they really love dad more than they love donuts. And that honors dad. They really do love dad more than donuts. But one of the benefits of being related to dad is that dad brings donuts. One of the greatest benefits of being related to dad is that dad brings donuts. And that's a picture of what it's like for a disciple waiting for Jesus to return. That's a picture that Peter will paint in verse 13 of chapter 1. Peter will tell us how to wait for Jesus. Peter would tell us basically that Jesus brings donuts. And I really wish I could tell you today that our big idea was Jesus brings donuts because that is a great big idea, but it's not our big idea today. But at the very least, I hope you leave with a mental image of Jesus with a box of donuts in his hands because that is the truth. Jesus brings donuts. When Jesus returns, he will bring the donuts, if you will. Our real big idea today is this. Grace gets all of the glory when it has all of our hope. Grace gets all of the glory when it has all of our hope. What I mean is that Jesus gets all of the glory in our salvation and in our lives when we put all of our trust and all of our hope in him. When we trust all that he has promised Jesus gets all the glory in this life. As we go through trials, he gets all of the glory. And when he returns, he gets all of the glory. And while we wait for Jesus to return, we're like little kids waiting for their dad to return with donuts. There's, there's preparation there's excitement, there's activity, there's hoping and dreaming and tasting. Our imaginations are alive and we can't wait. And it seems like it's taking forever sometimes, doesn't it? Just like kids waiting on dad to bring the donuts. It seems like it's taking forever for Jesus to come back. But then one day, the doorknob turns and there he is. One day, Jesus will turn the doorknob and he will be standing right in front of us. And when he returns, he will get all of the glory as we delight in him as our treasure. We love what he has done for us. We love that there is forgiveness of sins. We love that there is salvation. We love that we have been imputed with his righteousness, his perfect life, his perfect obedience to the law of God. We rejoice that we will get glorified bodies one day that will never sin and never get sick. But most of all, we love him. We love Jesus not perfectly because we're sinners. We know that. But we love him and we can't wait to see him. And we love him because of what he has done for us in salvation. We love Jesus more than we love the donuts. Oh, we love the donuts of salvation. The sweetness and the sweet things that are ours because we are in union with Christ as believers. But we love Jesus so much more. And that's the mental picture I want you to leave with today. I want you to picture your Savior 
showing up with donuts, showing up with the salvation that Peter says in verse five that is ready to be revealed on that final day. So look at verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, understand what Peter is doing here now in verse 13. He's trying to motivate his readers to obedience. That's why he says, therefore. In light of what he has just said in verses 1 through 12, Peter now wants his readers to respond. But what motivates us to obedience in the Christian life? Is it the law? Is it the demands of God's law? Is it the commandments of God? Is it do more, try harder, just get your act together? The answer is no. Should guilt and shame motivate us to obey God? Absolutely not. Although some churches and pastors preach this way, some pastors and churches preach a message of guilt and condemnation, laying burdens on their people that they cannot bear. As Steve Brown says, guilty people make people feel guilty. And you can tell how guilty a person really is by perceiving how guilty you feel in his or her presence. I fear too often the church has become an organization of guilty people with a guilty preacher standing in the pulpit telling guilty people that they should feel guiltier. Will that kind of preaching make you obey? It makes some people obey, not in a God-glorifying, Christ-honoring way. Guilty preaching will make you obey, but it's wrong. It doesn't honor the Lord. If I stand up here every week and I tell you that you stink and you need to try harder and you're not doing enough and and you never read your Bible and y'all don't pray and you never give to missions and you don't love Jesus as much as me and y'all are like the world and you need to repent and get your act together, does that make you want to obey? Does that make you want to do those things? No. It just makes you feel guilty. It loads you up with shame and condemnation. It makes you feel depressed and you feel like giving up, right? Well, what does make you want to obey? It's grace. What makes disciples want to obey the Lord? It's the radical, free grace of God given to sinners like you and me. And that's why Peter has spent 12 verses describing the grace of God before he ever tells his audience that they must do something. Peter spends 12 verses detailing the indicatives of the gospel, what has already been done for his audience, before he ever mentions the imperatives, the things that we must do, the commandments. And that's how it always works in Scripture. God's commandments are always rooted in his grace. They're always rooted in his unmerited favor. So grace comes before law. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, redeemed Israel out of the clutches of Pharaoh and Egypt, and then he gave them the law. Grace always comes before law. The indicatives, the truths of the gospel, come before the commandments, the imperatives. The duns come before the dues. Why? 
Because God, and Peter here, because God knows that when disciples are reminded of the gospel, when they are reminded of what God has already done for them, when they are reminded of just how free and grace really is then, and only then will it motivate them to obey God in a God-glorifying way. Peter knows that this kind of preaching will make you want to obey. When you hear a preaching that says, Christian, you are free. You are forgiven of everything, everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do. You're forgiven. You are redeemed. God is not mad at you anymore. He will never, ever be mad at you again. You sit You live, you abide under his love and his devotion. If you never, ever obeyed again, Christian, he would still love you and cherish you forever. If you never pleased him or even had the desire to please him anymore, Christian, he would still love you because you are covered with the righteousness of his son Jesus. So God sees you as blameless. God sees you as if you've never sinned and as if you have always obeyed. Nothing, nothing can change that. And if you sin, he will forgive you always, always. You are his child forever. Because Jesus paid it all, it is finished. Now, doesn't that make you want to go honor and love your Lord and obey his commands? Doesn't that make you feel free and put wind in your sails? Doesn't that make you want to dance? It might make you want to speak in tongues. I don't know. It might make you free. Doesn't that make you want to get up and move? Don't the promises of God make you want to get up and move? Don't the promises of donuts make you love and want to serve him? Doesn't preaching that stresses the promises of God, doesn't that make you feel alive? Or would you rather hear me say this and preach this way every week? Y'all stink and y'all need to try harder and you're not doing enough around here and and the reason we're not growing as a church is because y'all don't care about the gospel and you're not serving enough and y'all never read your Bibles and you never pray enough and you never give to missions and you don't love Jesus as much as me and y'all are like the world and you need to repent and get your act together. I'd rather not preach like that because it doesn't honor Jesus. Preaching like that stinks. That kind of preaching is anti gospel. That kind of preaching has no place for donuts. That kind of preaching offers you liver and tomato juice for breakfast. No donuts in that kind of preaching. No grace. And it doesn't honor God. It doesn't glorify God. And it doesn't make his people want to obey his good commandments. It just loads every person up with shame and guilt and locks them up in the chains and prison of condemnation. That is not the gospel. The gospel frees. Gospel preaching liberates people. Gospel preaching stresses over and over and over again that Jesus brings donuts. 
And Peter knows this, which is why he has hammered home the gospel to his audience for 12 verses. For 12 verses, Peter has not stopped talking about the free, radical grace of God that he gives to sinners like you and me. And Peter has spent 12 verses talking about grace because he wants his readers to obey. He wants them to be different. He wants them to be holy. He wants them to think and act differently. But he knows that guilt and shame will not motivate them in a God-glorifying way. Only grace will. I mean, you can motivate people with guilt and shame. They'll do what you want them to do if you motivate them that way. But it doesn't honor Christ. It actually puts people in chains, all done under the banner of Christianity. Wrong. So in light of all that Peter has said, Concerning the gospel, concerning salvation in verses 1 through 12, concerning what God has already done for them, he now wants his readers to do something. And what he wants them to do is right there at the end of verse 13, so we're going to jump towards the end. This is what he wants them to do. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're starting with this phrase because this phrase is the only imperative in this verse. This phrase is the only command in this verse. The other two phrases are participles that modify and tell us how to do what Peter is saying here. So here's how the verse should be worded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ by preparing your minds for action and by being sober-minded. So Peter wants them to set their hope fully, completely, 100% on Jesus. And he gives them two ways to do that that we'll look at in a moment. But first, what does it mean to fully hope? The biblical concept of hope is not how we usually think of hope. We usually think of hope this way. I hope my candidate wins the election. I hope the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl. And they might this year. I hope they make it to the playoffs and get into the second round of the playoffs because they usually blow it the first week. But I'm feeling good this year about the Cowboys. I hope they win the Super Bowl. I'm looking for a promise in the Bible that tells me they're going to go all the way and I'm going to cling to it. So I'm hoping the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl. Or we think of hope this way. I hope they didn't put mayonnaise on my cheeseburger. I have that hope every time I go to a restaurant. Or, I hope dad went to buy donuts. That's not what the biblical idea of hope is. That's just wishful thinking. If my kids wake up on a Saturday morning and I'm not there in the house, they hope the reason that I'm not there is because I went to buy them donuts. They are hoping that I went to get them donuts. But that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope means that you fully trust that God will do what he has promised to do. Biblical hope, the kind that Peter is talking about here, trusts all the promises of God, trusts that God will do what he said he will do. Biblical hope is simply believing the good news of the gospel. And Peter wants his readers to go all in with their hope in the gospel. He wants them to set their hope fully, completely on the grace that Jesus will bring them on the final day. He wants them to trust that Jesus will bring donuts. And just like a child, 
does not doubt their parents when their parents tell them that they are leaving the house to buy them donuts. So too, Christians are called to believe fully all of God's promises. In other words, hoping Christians do not live half-heartedly. Hoping Christians who are hoping and trusting in God's promises do not live half-heartedly. They trust that Jesus is as good as he has said he is. They trust that he's bringing donuts. And when they do that, when they trust him, when they set their hope fully on Jesus, they demonstrate the truth of our big idea. Grace gets all of the glory when it has all of our hope. Jesus gets all of the glory in our lives when he has all of our hope. When we go through various trials in life, when we go through pain, when we suffer, when we lose loved ones, when we get the news of cancer, when all of life seems like it's falling apart, when it feels like the bottom falls out, when we feel like we're going to collapse under the weight of it all. And when we can still say that we trust Jesus in the midst of all of those things, that our hope is in him, then he is glorified big time. When we go through hell on earth and we can still point to Jesus and say, you're my treasure. You're my everything. All my hope is in you, Jesus. I trust you. I'm weak. I'm falling apart. I'm a mess. But I trust you. You've never let me down. You are faithful. All of my eggs are in your basket. You're my treasure, my joy, my delight. You are my everything. Jesus, you're better. You're better than any comfort. You're better than any riches, better than any victory. Jesus, you are better, and I trust in you. When you can say that even in the darkest places of your life, then Jesus is mightily glorified. When all of your hope is in Jesus He gets all of the glory. When in the middle of the darkest time of your life, you can set your hope fully on his grace, he is glorified. And this is exactly Peter's point back in verse seven when he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we rejoice in salvation, in all that God has already done for us, when we can rejoice in Jesus right in the middle of our trials, then he gets all of the glory, both in the midst of our trials and on that final day when we see him face to face. So grace gets all of the glory when it has all of our hope. And what will that day be like then? What will the revelation of Jesus Christ be like? Why are we called to hope fully in the grace that will be revealed? Because on that day, we will finally be transformed. The trials that are slowly conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, they will finally end and we will be completely conformed to his image forever. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or crying or pain. We will get new glorified bodies that never get sick, never get cancer, never sin. Can you imagine never sinning? I can't. It's, it's all I know. I can't imagine never 
sinning because all I know is sin. But one day, one day I will finally and forever be done with sin. Never to sin again. And I cannot wait because there's a better me coming, Grace. Hang on. The Benji Magnus in eternity will be way better Far better. He'll finally be conformed to the image of Jesus. You'll like him. You'll love being around him. You'll think he's awesome. You'll actually like him. Why am I talking in the third person? You'll love me. You'll like me. And I'll like you. And I'll love you. But one thing I won't like still is I won't like mayonnaise Because it will be finally and forever thrown into the bottomless pit. (laughs) Actually, I think the bottomless pit, the lake of fire that Satan is thrown into, I think it's mayonnaise. (laughs) Really, I think Satan will be thrown into mayonnaise because that would be torment. And I can prove it. Revelation 20.10 says... And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. The word lake in Greek is limne or limnes. Sounds a lot like mayonnaise to me. Limnes, mayonnaise. Therefore, mayonnaise is eternal torment. See, you can't make this stuff up. I didn't write Revelation. I just looked it up this week and thought, I wonder what what that word is. Sure enough, the Greek word for the lake of fire, sulfur, and torment is limne or limnes. Therefore, mayonnaise is torment. You can't argue with scripture. (laughs) But seriously, can you imagine never sinning again? That's part of the grace that will be revealed when Jesus returns. And in the end, it isn't just that we won't sin that gets us excited. It isn't just that we're forgiven. It isn't just that we get new glorified bodies. It isn't just that Satan will be thrown in the manis of torment. In the end, it's that we will finally be with Jesus. That's heaven, being with Jesus. Heaven is not being with your loved ones. That's just a little side part. That's a little tiny donut hole. Heaven is being with Jesus. He's the point. He's the star of heaven. Not our loved ones, not Moses, not Paul. It's Jesus. If you get there and you're like, oh, there's Jesus, but I'm looking for someone else, you might not actually get there. He's the point of heaven. He's why we want to be there. Everything else is just icing on the cake. Everything else is just donut holes. And it's not that Jesus brings donuts and gets us excited. It's that Jesus brings donuts. It's him that we want, him that we long for. And when you can put your hope fully in that, then Jesus is mightily glorified in your life. And now the question is, how do we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. Peter tells us how in the two participles that modify this phrase. So let's look at each one. The first one is preparing your minds for action. The first way that you can set your hope fully on Jesus is by preparing your minds for action. Peter says preparing your minds for action 
And what he means by that is that we should collect our thoughts. That's how we would say it. But back then, there was a different way to say it. In fact, Peter takes a common phrase from his day, and then he applies it to thinking. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that tells you what the original Greek here says. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. It's it's a funny and a weird way of saying collect your thoughts. The King James Version says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. I kind of picture Mel Gibson in Braveheart saying this, gird up the loins of your mind and fight for your freedom. And in Peter's day, this is, people would have, they would have done this if they'd gone to battle. People wore robes, and when you wanted to run or to jump into combat, if you were a soldier, you had to grab all of your dangly robe and tuck it in so that you could move. You had to gird up your loins. Here's a picture from the Art of Manliness blog that gives step-by-step instructions for how you can gird up your loins. But this is what they would have done. They would have just wrapped it up through their legs, kind of tucked it in like a diaper so that they could fight. So Peter takes this very common phrase. If you're on the battlefield, gird up your loins. It's like, tuck your robe in and get busy. He takes that and he applies it to thinking. He's telling his audience, gather your thoughts. Collect your thoughts. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Start moving, start running, and get active. And the reason they need to do that is because, as we saw last week, they were going through severe suffering and trials. So their thoughts were all over the place. What's going to happen next? They're worried. They had fears. The unknown was looming. They didn't know what was happening. Their thoughts are all over the place. And Peter's saying, gather your thoughts. Here's how you make it through your trials. Gather your thoughts. Get recalibrated with the gospel. Collect your thoughts. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And what he means essentially is that they needed to be disciplined in thoughts. They needed to be disciplined in their thinking. They needed to fight becoming a spiritual couch potato. They needed to exert effort. They needed to concentrate. They needed to be intentional. Peter wants his readers to avoid drifting, to avoid merely floating along in the Christian life. And how do they do this? By believing the gospel. They needed to stay focused on Jesus. They needed to stay focused on grace. They needed to hear Puritan Richard Sibbs' wisdom when he said, It is good, therefore, to store up true principles in our hearts and to refresh them often, that in virtue of them our affections and actions may be vigorous. It is good to store up true principles in our hearts and in our minds and to refresh them often so that in virtue of them, our affections and actions may be vigorous. They needed to store up true principles in their hearts and to refresh them often. They needed to refresh the promises of God in his word so that their affections and actions would be more vigorous. And that's the first way that you set your hope on grace. You store up gospel promises in your heart and in your mind and you refresh them often so that your affections and your actions are more vigorous. If you do that, then you will end up with your hope set fully on the future grace of God that will be yours when Jesus returns. You will have your mind set fully 
on Jesus. Second way we set our hope fully on Jesus is by being sober-minded. Peter tells them in verse 13 to be sober-minded. He'll actually tell them three times in this letter to be sober-minded. What Peter is saying when he says be sober-minded is don't act and live like a drunk person mentally or in your thoughts. Drunk people can't think straight. Their judgment is impaired. They, they stumble around. They don't think straight. And Peter isn't just telling them don't get drunk. What he doesn't want for them is to live in this kind of foggy state of mind that a drunk person is in. He, he wants his readers to avoid living in a way that God becomes boring to them. That the things of God become dull. That the gospel becomes bland. That they're kind of foggy and drowsy. He says, I don't want you to be drowsy so that you lose sight of Jesus. So Peter doesn't want his readers to drift or to get drowsy. He wants them to think rightly and to drink deeply of the gospel. David Mathis actually said something very similar last week on the Desiring God blog. He said, gospel hope, that's what we're talking about, gospel hope guards our minds in the battle swirling around us and lifts our gaze beyond our present confusion to the certainty of victory. The most sober thinkers in the world are those who have drunk most deeply of the gospel. And that's what Peter wants for his readers, He wants them to drink deeply of the gospel, to drink deeply of grace because it will help them renew their minds. Peter wants to lift his audience from the battle swirling around them. Conflict with the world, they're suffering, they're being persecuted because they're believers. Conflict within the church, we'll see in a couple of weeks. They have some issues with other people. Conflict within marriages and families, we'll get to that eventually. Peter wants them to lift them out of all of that confusion And help them to focus on their future. Specifically, he wants them to focus on the grace that will be revealed when Jesus returns. He wants them to focus on Jesus. So how do we set our hope on the grace that is coming? We do it by preparing our minds. Gathering our thoughts and not drifting. And we do it by being sober minded. By not living a dull life lulled into sleepiness. By being zoned out. By being drowsy. Indifferent to the gospel. Bored with the things of God. Let me ask you today. Are you bored with the things of God? Do you open this book and be like, eh. Gospel, yeah, yeah. Pastor heard it a million times. Jesus lived and died for me. He's coming again. Are you bored? It's time for you to be sober minded. Wake up. Like when you're driving a car and you're just zoning out and you're like, what have I been doing for the last 10 miles? I don't even, you ever do that when you drive long distance? You're like, I don't remember driving the last five or six miles. You ever do that? Some places you should have seen and noticed. Or you ever drive and you just get drowsy and you're like, "Mm," you know, "Mm." that's what Peter, he doesn't want them to, to drift, to get lost, to zone out and 10 miles go by. He doesn't want them to get drowsy as they're driving. But how easy is it to drift How easy is it to to zone out in the Christian life, to get drowsy, to get sleepy? It's probably the easiest thing to do as a Christian because it doesn't require any energy. It requires nothing on our part. It just, you wake up one day and you find yourself, I've drifted, I've been drowsy, I've been kind of lulled to sleep a little bit. Things are foggy. It's so easy to do that, to be distracted by the things of this world. Slip into a kind of, drifting, 
drowsy discipleship. So Peter is saying to his readers, hey, wake up. Realize what you have believed. Believe again what you believed when you heard and believed the gospel. When those people in verse 11 brought the gospel to you. God loves you. God forgives you. Jesus is coming again. He will restore this broken world. Remind yourself of that. What Peter is doing is just shoving some smelling salts under their nose like a a boxer's coach to get them to to wake up. He's just throwing a bucket of water on their face like you see in the movies when they need to wake a drunk guy up. You know, you splash him with this water. He's saying, set your eyes on grace. It's coming. Set your eyes on Jesus. Put all your hope and trust in him and his promises. He's coming. Set your eyes on Jesus by by pulling your thoughts together, by rolling up the sleeves of your mind, by by not acting like a drunk person stumbling around. Refresh and rehearse the gospel. And when you do that, when you set your gaze on Jesus, then Jesus will be mightily glorified. Peter is essentially saying grace gets all of the glory when it has all of our hope. When we can say to live is Christ, to die is gain. Can you say that today? Can you say to live is Christ, to die is gain? I can leave my family right now. I can leave this world and it's gain because I have Jesus. I can leave my grandkids today if God takes my life and it's gain. There's not sadness and sorrow. It's gain because I get Jesus. Can you say that today? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Is he your treasure Or things foggy, you kind of lost sight of him, it's kind of murky, can't really see who he is anymore, he's not as appealing, he's not as attractive. Can you say he is your treasure? Jesus gets all the glory in our lives when we rehearse the promises of God that we have stored up in our hearts and in our minds and on our iPhones. When all of our hope is in the promises of God, when all of our hope is in Jesus, then Jesus gets all the glory. So what that means for you and me is that we need to fight the drift. We need to fight becoming drowsy grace. And when you fight the drift, you glorify Jesus as treasure. When you fight being drowsy, you glorify Jesus as treasure. Like when you're driving a long distance and you're falling asleep and you're slapping your face, you're rolling down the window and turning up the radio because you've got to go somewhere. When you fight the drift like that, like wake up, what are you doing? Wake up, you glorify Jesus. When you fight drifting and fight becoming drowsy, you glorify Jesus as the one who is worthy of your worship. Worthy of your attention, worthy of your time, worthy of your focus. You glorify Jesus because you say he's worth the fight. He's worth saying no to sin. When you fight the drift and when you fight becoming drowsy, you become like Moses in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses set his hope fully on the grace to be revealed 
that would be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was looking forward to the reward, and the reward is Jesus. Jesus was his treasure. All of his hope was in Jesus, so Jesus was glorified. So let me ask you, are you drifting today? Are you drowsy? Is your hope set fully on the grace that will be revealed at Jesus' coming? When a dad tells his kids that he's going to get donuts, they don't turn back into zombies. They don't just plop down on the couch and become these lifeless, expressionless beings. They wait eagerly with expectation, with anticipation. That's how we are to be now, Grace. Do you need to get recalibrated this morning? Are you drifting? Are you drowsy? Are are you like a zombie stumbling and, and staggering around? It's time to get recalibrated again. And we do that by looking to Jesus and what he has done for us. We do that by rehearsing the gospel, by refreshing the promises of God. And when we do that, when we turn our eyes once again to our treasure, then Jesus is mightily glorified. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is to just drift, lose sight of all of these gospel promises that Peter has detailed in the first 12 verses. How easy it is to become drowsy and drift off to sleep. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come with the gospel, with your word, with gospel promises this morning and shove them under our nose like smelling salt that we would wake up, that that the Spirit would splash our face with a bucket of water, that we would hear Peter's admonition to wake up and set our hope fully on the grace that we will revealed when your Son returns. Namely, to set our hope on Jesus. May we be a church that can say to live is Christ and to die is gain for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.